Last time we left off, we were talking about the imminent rapture of the church, and we went through a bunch of passages, both in the Gospels and also the Pauline literature, and that's where we're going to pick it up this evening. We're going to start in by examining, again, the imminent rapture, examining the hope for Christians in every generation, and we're going to be picking it up where we left off. So let me just show you the agenda of where we're going this evening. We will look at more imminence passages. Number one. Number two, we will look in depth at Revelation 3.10 and related texts. Revelation 3.10 is an extremely important passage, and it's been poo-pooed by many theologians as saying it's inconclusive. And I don't think it is inconclusive, and I think actually we can give a very powerful case that it proves the pre-trib position. And number three, we will be addressing some pre-wrath slash post-trib objections that I find to be fairly weak regarded to these issues. So with that, let me pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that the promises that you've given us, we can be assured that the best is yet to come, that there is a heaven that awaits for us, a new earth, a millennial kingdom in the eternal states. And for that, we're forever grateful. And Lord, you did this for a people that have rebelled against you in thought, word, and deed. Yet your son has redeemed us through his blood. And we're, we're so grateful for that. Lord, I ask that this message would help conform us all to the image of your Son, that you would help us understand the promises better so that we may live lives that are free and unentangled with sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember last time we left off in Philippians 3.20 and we were talking about the idea of imminence and we talked about imminence was the notion that you had an overhanging event that could come about at any moment. Now that meant that it, you know, it might be the next second, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the next second. It could be a thousand years from now. The idea is we don't know when the event will happen. It's imminent. It's overhanging. It could happen at any moment. And we saw where we left off was in Philippians 3.20 where we saw this very theme where Paul wrote, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember we talked about that term apodekamai? It literally means eagerly await, but it's in that present tense, meaning that there was ongoing, continuous waiting. And why would you be in the midst of ongoing, continuous, eagerly expectation of something that could not occur? And so that again shows that even in Paul's day, they expected that nothing had to take place prior to the rapture of the church. Now, interestingly enough, five verses later, in Philippians 4, 5, we have another imminence passage where Paul writes, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, this term near, it's angus. It's kind of how you say it. There's, there's, I always have a trouble with this one because there's two gammas next, next to each other. But it's angus, and it's an adverb, and it means near. And the question is, does the nearness have to do with place? In other words, it would be the Lord is near, that is spatially in the sense that he's spiritually with us. Or does it have to do with time? That is, the Lord is near in the timing of his coming. And I think it's the latter. I think it's number two. And the main reason I believe that is because it's five verses after talking about this eschatological event, the eagerly awaiting the Savior who's going to come from the heavens. Okay? Now, let me just show you that it's not just me. Not, this isn't just because I'm a pre-trib rapture guy. But many other scholars see it the same way. In fact, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the scholar there on volume 2, page 231, says that Paul uses ingus only in the short eschatological message in Philippians 4-5. Why is that important? 
because the writer of this, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, is stating that this is an eschatological passage. And why did he come to that conclusion? Well, more than likely because this, the, for the same reason I did. Because five verses earlier, it had to do with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. Okay? And I'll give you some more evidence here. Here's another. Um, this is the guy who writes for the New American Commentary. Richard Mellick, he says this, Paul made this emphatic by reminding them that the Lord was at hand. The statement sobers Christians for two reasons. He will come as judge, expecting to see this quality in his people, having personified the quality himself. He knows what it is like. So notice this commentator saying he will come as judge. Well, of course, that is an eschatological event, and that means, again, he's understanding Ingus as related to time. The fact that the Lord is coming. The judgment is at hand. Because remember, when he raptures the church, we're caught up to meet him in the air. It's the beginning of the 70th week. And then judgment comes upon the world. And so again, this, this author or scholar sees it the same way. Again, let me show you a few others. James Moffat. This is according to Reynolds Shower in his book, Maranatha, Our Lord Come, page 132. He says, James Moffat asserted that in the context of Philippians 4, 5, the expression, the Lord is at hand, means the imminent arrival of the Lord rather than his spiritual presence with the church. And again, imminent arrival, again, friends, means it can happen at any moment. It's an overhanging event. It could happen tonight. It could happen five minutes from now. It could be 50 years from now. It could be 100 years from now. We don't know. It's imminent. It's overhanging. It could happen at any time. And the same thing is said by F.W. Beer in his commentary on the epistle to the Philippians, page 146. He says, The apostle is not speaking of the nearness of the Lord, again, the abiding presence with us, but of the imminence of his coming. So he sees it the same way. Now, I'm going to, just for the sake of time, I'm going to be leaving the Pauline literature. There's a lot more that could be pointed to as far as imminence that Paul talks about. But I want to talk about a passage in James that's very powerful. James chapter 5. I'm just going to start in 7b and read through verse 9. So here's James. He says, The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, he says, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord. There we have parousia of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now notice, first of all, friends, this is near again. This near is actually the verbal form of angus, and it's in the perfect active indicative. It's ingitso. Now, why is it important that it's in the perfect tense? Well, because that means God has set it already in place, this date. So he has fixed this time. And remember, Acts 17.31 says that God has indeed fixed a time that he will judge the world by a man, furnishing proof by raising him from the dead, remember? Well, that time is the timing of the rapture and all the events associated thereafter. The problem is we don't know when that's going to be. No man knows the day or the hour. Okay, The Lord alone knows. All we know is that it's near. It could happen any time. And notice it goes on to say the judge is standing right at the door. Okay, Now, notice what this James Adamson of the New American Commentary says. At the door, and you can see all these other passages that I have listed here, he says is a picture of imminent judgment and incentive to patience. The picture is that the Lord is at literally the doors. It's plural. I think it's plural. I think I studied this a couple weeks ago, but it's in the plural, I believe. And what's interesting is it's the idea that the judge can come through into the courtroom at any time. And so if he can come through the courtroom at any time, 
and you don't know when it's going to be. You have to be constantly ready. And that's the whole idea uh, of imminence. It's an overhanging event. And again, that ties in very nicely with all the other passages that we've been reading about, about imminence. Now, let me show you some other commentators. This actually comes from a translator's guide to the letters from James, Peter, and Jude from the United Bible Society. Okay, this is the people. There's two types of Greek texts that you can have. One is from Nestle Aland. They have like the 27th edition, maybe it's the 28th. And then you have one from the United Bible Society, and I think they're on their fourth edition. Well, these are the people who actually produce the Greek texts, and they have actually a commentary, and even they see this as referring to the imminent coming of the Lord. It says, The judge is standing at the doors. This is another way of speaking of the imminent coming of the Lord. Robert Bratcher. Here's M.F. Sadler in the general epistles. James, Peter, John, and Judy says, The Lord had laid it upon his disciples that they should be ever looking for a coming which might be expected at any moment after his departure and yet might be long delayed. That's exactly imminence as understood by the pre-trib position. It can happen at any second, but there might be delay. Why? Because we don't know. It's imminent. It's an overhanging event. The same thing is said by this J.A. Moitier in the Test of Faith on page 107. He says, His, that is Jesus' return, is at hand. It has been so from the days of the apostles. James was not mistaken, even though he lives over a thousand years ago. The return of the Lord was then at hand. The return of the Lord is now at hand. We live in the last days, the days of the imminent return. So friends, scholar after scholar after scholar is seeing the biblical data, seeing the evidence that the judge can come through the door at any time, that his coming is near, that we're eagerly, constantly, continuously expecting him. Why would you do that for something that can't happen? The data is clear that the Lord can return without any precursor and again proving the doctrine of imminence. Now, what I want to do is talk about some pre-wrath objections to James and I will be dealing with some of Ryan Habanaugh's book and the reason I'm choosing his is because it's more recent than some of the older scholars who wrote like Marv Rosenthal, The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church. And what, what ends up happening is if I take Marv Rosenthal to task, then you inevitably get people say, well, that's not the latest and greatest. So <laughs> I'm going with Ryan. And again, Ryan, I love him as a brother. We agree on 99% of the things. If you sit under him, you're going to know the Bible well and you're going to understand the gospel. And so we're just disagreeing on very fine points. And um, iron is sharpening iron. So, But let me explain what he does in his book. What he does is he cites James 5, 7 through 8, and he sets it up. And he is going to knock it down and say that it doesn't teach imminence. But what's interesting is he leaves out a very important verse. He leaves out verse 9. Now, why does he do that? Because verse 9 is extremely important, which says, Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. He doesn't even address that. And I don't know if it's an intentional omission or not. I don't know. I don't know what his motivation was. I'll have to call him and and ask him about it. I didn't get a chance. But at any rate, he leaves that out. But listen to what Ryan goes on to say, and I'm going to pick it apart a little bit. Just for clarity, he says this in his book, Those holding to an any moment imminence assert that if the Lord is near, no signs need to occur before his return. However, upon closer biblical examination, this implication is demonstrated to be an error. The Greek word for near is engekin. That's the one we just looked at. This term is likely used to allude to the resurrection and ascension of Christ and the spread of the gospel. Okay. Now, I know I actually forgot to read to you the definition from Lonida, but that's not what the term means. The term has to do with one point of reference drawing near to another, just as you would say my birthday is drawing near or any event is drawing near, but it doesn't necessarily have to do with the resurrection and ascension per se. 
Now, I think he's right in the sense that after the ascension of Christ, obviously the next event on the calendar is the rapture. But I'm just confused as to why he says that Ingekin refers to those things. We may have to ask him. And every now and then we write things that are unclear and we say things that are unclear. I'm just not sure what he means by that. Nonetheless, the important thing is what he says here. He continues, he says, In fact, this same root of this Greek term was used to describe the feast in the gospel. He says, Now the Passover, this he's quoting from John 11.55, Now the Passover of the Jews was near. There's our adverb, ingus. Now here's Ryan. He says, Obviously the Passover was not going to occur at any moment. On the contrary, the Passover which had a fixed day had drawn near because of past action the completion of the last feast, thus creating the present result, the anticipation for the next feast, that is Passover. Therefore, this is confirming evidence that the declaration the Lord is near does not imply an any moment coming of Christ. And that's from page 158 of the parable of the fig tree. Now, here is, I, I was thinking about why is, you know, this strikes me as wrong, but what's wrong with it? Well, here's, I think, the error that Ryan is making, and he's, he's actually making a category error. And the problem is, is he's confused a fixed day, that is Passover, which is a known day. That's a day that you can say, well, the 14th day of Nisan is Passover. But he's confusing that, a fixed day that's known, with a fixed day that's not known. That is the rapture. Yes, God has fixed a day according to Acts 17.31, but according to Matthew 24.36, you don't know when that is. It could be tonight at 11.05. It could be next Wednesday at 3 p.m. You don't know, but you do know when Passover is. According to Exodus 12.6, it was going to be every 14th day of Nisan. So if you're a Jewish person, you simply, I know this is anachronistic, but you'd look at your watch or your calendar and you'd say it's the 13th day of Nisan. Tomorrow's the 14th. It's Passover. It's near. But you can't say that. You can't say, well, gosh, it's July 7th. We know that Jesus is coming July 8th at 7.05. We better be ready. He's making a category error. And so his whole objection falls short. Again, the category error that he's making is, yes, the fixed day that's known is Passover, but the fixed day that's not known is the rapture of the Lord. And therefore, his objection falls well short. And again, I say this in love. I love Ryan, and he does so many things well. It's just that I think this is an error. And and by the way, he's going to be replying to me, and so I encourage everyone to listen to him. He's going to post, I think it's a, what do you call that when you go on the Internet and you, uh, uh, not blog, When you uh, podcast, there you go. Shows you how inept I am uh, (laughs) with technology. He's going to podcast. So I encourage everyone to to listen to that. And Because, again, the scriptures are the final authority, not me. But, again, I think he's making a clear error here. Now, the next area that I want to talk to you about is Revelation 3.10. This is a passage that's extremely important. And I think it's been abused, quite frankly, by the post-trib position people. Now, Revelation 3.10, the big debate that the pre-rathers have is they don't believe this passage applies to all Christians for all time, but it merely applies for the church in Philadelphia. And I'm going to lay out the case initially here that that's not the case. The promises that are given to the seven churches apply to all Christians for all time. Okay? And so we have a contextual question we have to ask. And the question I just alluded to was, does this apply? How are the letters to the seven churches, that is Revelation 2, 1 through 3, 22, to be applied to us today? And there's been four approaches primarily over the years. The first one has been lumped into what's called the historist approach, which is where the seven churches represent seven periods of church history, each exhibiting the special features 
of the respective original church. So in other words, Laodicea is the last church. And so the historical perspective would be that the last phase of the church is that we're going to be lukewarm. Are you with me? Well, the, you know, the church before that, um, or let's say, was it Philadelphia? I think it was before that. That would be faithful church and, and so forth. So the history would follow those types of churches. And so we'd end up in the lukewarm phase. I don't buy it. I don't think that that's how, and I'll explain why I don't buy that. But let me keep moving on for the sake of time. The next approach is called the preterist approach. These are the people who believe everything was fulfilled in 70 AD. Okay? Jesus came not physically, but spiritually. And so full preterism is actually heretical because it denies a literal bodily coming of Christ. Now, people like R.C. Sproul are partial preterists where they still believe that there's a literal coming of Jesus Christ, the eternal states. But this is the full preterist position that we're talking about. That is, the letters are only for the seven churches because everything was fulfilled by 70 A.D. The next approach is, this is the one I would subscribe to, is the futurist approach. The letters to the seven churches are literally applicable to all Christians for all time. And the other, the other mode would be the spiritual approach. And this would, they would maintain that the letters to the seven churches are spiritually applicable for all churches for all time. So what's the difference between these two? Well, let's take Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10 gives the promise that because you have kept my word of perseverance, Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Okay? Well, to take that literally, you and I would say, yes, there's literally going to be a period, an hour, the hour of great trial that's coming upon the world. And therefore, that is talking about the Daniel 70th week, and we're literally going to be spared that. The spiritualist would say, well... It's generally all Christians for all time are going to go through problems and trials and tribulations and God is going to help us persevere through those things. You see the difference? So they don't look at these things literally. It's more of a spiritual approach, just general principles for all time. And so that's where we would be differing with them. Okay, so again, I'm advocating the futurist approach here. Now let me explain why and why I would advocate that. One of the reasons I hold to this is because of the structure of the seven messages to the seven churches. Remember, the seven churches were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Ephesus was known as the loveless church. Uh, Smyrna was the persecuted church. Pergamum was the church that fell into sin. Thyatira was also a church that fell into sin. Sardis, they were known as the dead church. Philadelphia was the faithful church. And Laodicea, of course, was the lukewarm church. So only Smyrna and Philadelphia received no condemnation. Those are the only two churches that, in fact, were righteous in God's eyes. Okay, But yet, ironically, and this is what Ryan is going to pick up on, Smyrna is promised persecution, tribulation, whereas Philadelphia is promised exemption from the hour of tribulation and i'm going to explain the differences but here's let me show you the seven things that are common that are told from christ to each of these churches in other words when jesus addresses each of these churches he uses an address that has these seven items in them okay number one he always addresses who they are number two he gives his own attributes okay whatever they may be, and they, they vary in each of the accounts. He talks about who he is, and then he asserts complete knowledge of those who addressed. He explains their faithfulness or their lack thereof. He explains what type of situation they find themselves in. So he shows his omniscience. And then he gives a description of the state of the church, whether praiseworthy. Um, he gives them promises. He censures them, gives them warnings, and so forth. 
And then he always gives the promise of his coming. And then the sixth thing, and this is the thing that I want to focus in on for our purposes this evening, is that he always gives a universal command to hear. So in every case, in every one of the churches, he will say this at the very end. He'll say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now what's interesting is, in the, the Bible, both in the New and the Old Testament, hearing isn't just the physical sensation of having sound waves go through your eardrum. We hear in a salvific way. And so when he says, he who has an ear, the only way you can hear or have an ear for God is that you're regenerated, that you're actually a believer. Okay, So this is for believers. But notice it says, he who has an ear. Therefore, it's for all believers. Okay, And what's interesting is that it says here, let him hear. And it also, that kind of sounds like it's in the subjunctive, but it's actually an imperative. It means it's a command. He literally says, hear. So if you could translate it this way, he who has an ear, hear or listen what, to what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's a command. And so what I'm claiming is that because this is stated at each of the seven churches, it's a universal principle for all Christians for all time. Okay? Now, the seventh thing that he'll say is a promise to the overcomer. And again, this is in every one of these churches. He says, to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat of the tree of life and and so forth and so on. He keeps saying that. So that's a promise to be an overcomer. And remember, when we studied 1 John 5, 5, who is it that overcomes but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So that's how you're an overcomer. Now, those who believe in the Son of God actually do persevere. And so here's the, here's the catch-22. Believers are overcomers because they believe in Jesus, and those who believe in Jesus end up persevering and overcoming. So it, they're wrapped into each other. But those are the seven things that are addressed to each of the churches and so the question, does Revelation 3.10 apply to us? The way I would answer it is yes. It does apply to us because the statement, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Okay. Now what I'm going to show you is the rub that Ryan would put on it, his angle, and why he doesn't hold to that. Okay. So let me read to you Revelation 3.10 and let me just go through this passage with you. John writes, and this is Jesus speaking, he says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. So here we have a clear promise that we will be kept from the hour of testing. But then earlier on in Revelation 2, 9 through 10, we have another righteous church, Smyrna. Listen to what Jesus says to them. He says, I know your tribulation, and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, let me explain the difference. What I would hold to is that these people having tribulation for 10 days, first of all, it's a local tribulation. And it's a temporal one. It's only for 10 days. Now, some scholars think it's literally 10 days. I think 10 days probably more than likely is an indication of completion in a short period of time. But nonetheless, maybe it's just 10 days. But here's the point. What Ryan and Marv Rosenthal would do is they would say, well, yeah, you have a promise for the perseverance or the keeping of the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10, but another righteous church is going to go through tribulation. And so they, in a sense cancel each other out you can't conclude anything they must be just appropriate for the given church but i think that's an error and let me explain why 
Again, first of all, notice this phrase that I have listed, the hour of testing. Notice it's not an hour. There's the definite article there. It's the hour. And notice the hour, hora in Greek, it's talking about a temporal time frame. So it's not just the tribulation, but it's the time. Okay? And notice we are to be exempt from the time. And so I think it goes a long way to say that you can't possibly be there. If you can't be even during there during the time of something going on, you're certainly not going to be present in the event itself. Are, are you with me? So this, friends, is the hour that has been promised to come upon the whole world starting all the way back in Daniel 9. This is the 70th week. I think I've proven that God's wrath comes at the beginning of the 70th week, and we're going to get into that issue again in the book of Revelation. I'll be proving that again. But nonetheless, this is a future event. And notice, it comes upon the whole world, literally the inhabited world. This is no localized tribulation or this is no small town event. This is the whole world. And nothing like that has ever occurred. And what's more, notice this phrase that says, those who dwell upon the earth. That phrase, I actually wrote them all down. I did a study on here. That phrase, that very phrase in the Greek is found in Revelation 3.10 here. Revelation 8.13, Revelation 11.10, Revelation 13.14. And in each case, it always refers to unbelievers. So the phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, it never refers to believers. It's always unbelievers. So the point is, this hour of testing that's going to test the whole world is coming upon the unregenerate. Okay? So again, it's, it's going to be universal. It's the whole world. It's going to test the unregenerate. But this one down here is localized and it's short and it's just for this church. So here's the principle that I would lay out. I think, again, every one of these churches, what is said to them applies to all Christians for all time. So this is how I would understand it. We have localized tribulation in Revelation 2, 9 through 10 for Smyrna. And so all Christians like Smyrna will have tribulation in your life. Okay, Robert Bachtel does a lot of street witnessing. I'm sure you've been persecuted, Right. Uh, play along if you haven't, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, but we know our friends in North Korea, we have Christian brothers and sisters that are there, brothers and sisters in China. They're undergoing uh, local persecution, but they're not undergoing the hour of testing, okay? So the idea is that we will all have tribulation in this life to lesser or greater amount. So that applies to all Christians for all time. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. But this also applies to us that there's going to be worldwide tribulation for seven years, and that applies to all Christians like Philadelphia. We are exempt. Okay? So that's how I would understand it. Is that, is that clear? It's clear to me, but sometimes you, you write things and you think, wow, that's very clear, and it's not. Is that, does that make sense? Okay. So that's how I would understand it. Now, Ryan would disagree. And what he's going to do is he's going to take issue with this. Now, what I'm going to show you, ironically, and again, I'm not trying to pick on him. I, I, you know, he generally does a great job, but he actually contradicts his own writing on two pages. So on page 162, he says this, and I completely agree with him. Page 162 of Ryan's book, he says, because the underlying issue evident in these letters transcend time, the messages given by Christ to his church, that is the seven churches, are also to be read, understood, and heeded by his people throughout the age of the church. I say, amen, Ryan. He's exactly right. I completely agree. Okay, and then he continues. He says, in my mind, this is the only viable way to, to preserve the historical, prophetic, and continuing function of the letters of Revelation 2-3. through 3. Amen, I completely agree. But what's ironic is in order for him to get around the notion that Revelation 3.10 teaches preservation 
from this hour. Because remember, if that's true, pre-wrath is done. If we are exempt from the hour of trial, because remember, it's either the seven-year period or the three-and-a-half-year period, either the tribulation or the great tribulation. In either case, pre-wrath believes that they're going to be present for that period. Okay, so if Revelation 3.10 says what I say it says, then the pre-wrath position is done. And so he can't hold to that. So listen to what he goes on, and I think he contradicts himself. Ryan continues, he says, Thus, being kept from the hour, he's talking about Revelation 3.10 on page 163 of his book, being kept from the hour of trial does not indicate an imminent removal from the earth, but rather protection of a portion of the church from the time of trial because of previous perseverance in the purposes of God. So he believes that that church, the promise, is given only to Philadelphia. Now notice the contradiction up here. He was correct. It was What was written to the seven churches was for all the churches throughout the age of the church. He's exactly right. Right on. Why? Because he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. And that's said after each message to each of the seven churches. So Brian is correct on that. But then he actually contradicts his own position when he says, well, now this promise is only for a portion of the church. Well, wait, which is it? Is it for all the people throughout the age of the church or is it only for a portion of the church? And, of course, I think he's right up here. Because why? He who has an ear, let him hear. Again, this is a universal. It would be like saying everyone who has an ear. And, of course, who is the everyone? Well, the only people that have ears to hear are the regenerate. They're believers. So this is for all believers, and the command is to listen. And it's said in Revelation 2.7, Revelation 2.11, 2.17, 2.29, 3.6, 3.13, 3.22. Let's add that up. That's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Seven times. I think the Lord wants us to know something. That is, this is for us. And so, again, I think Ryan has contradicted himself, and therefore I don't think that his opposition to Revelation 3.10 holds. Friends, it is for all people for all time because it is a universal command, and that hour of tribulation isn't a localized persecution. It is involving the whole inhabited world, which is a literal rendering of the Greek. Okay, now, let's talk about Revelation 3.10b in detail, and I'm going to be talking about the question, protection. Are we receiving protection from the trial or through the trial? And so let me read Revelation 3.10b and focus in. Uh, John, again, has Jesus saying this, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Now, what we want to focus in on is this verb. It's a future active indicative, tereo. It's tereso. That's the verb, we'll keep. And we're going to be focusing in on how that affects this preposition from, which is ek. And the question, and the only question, that we must answer, and we have to answer it correctly, is this question here. This is really the only thing that we have to decide is ek, the preposition from, in Revelation 3.10, in the inside or outside position? And I'll explain what I mean by the inside or outside position. So let me first of all explain the inside position. The post-trib and some pre-rathers would hold that the preposition ek means that you are going to persevere during the midst of the tribulation. So they would read this passage and they would understand it to say this, I also will keep you during the hour of testing. That's how they would understand it. Okay? And so let me put my diagram here. What they understand is that ek normally functions as a preposition, meaning out from within. But the problem with them maintaining it means that here is because the preposition is governed by the verb. 
And so if the verb, which is keep, tereso here, future active indicative of tereo, indicates preservation rather than movement, we're going to demonstrate conclusively that it's actually used in the outside position. So again, what the post-trib is saying is that they're going to be kept through, they're going to be in the trial, they're going to be in the tribulation period, but they're going to be preserved. So as all the wrath of God comes down, God's people are going to be supernaturally preserved during that period. Okay? So they are seeing ek here, the from, as being used in the inside position. Does that make sense? Whereas the pre-tribulational understanding, and I'm going to be proving this to be the case, is we see ek, that is from, functioning on the outside position. That is, we never enter into this trial. And so how can we determine whether ek is in the outside or the inside position? Well, we can tell by usage. And I'm going to prove to you that John uses it in a very similar, almost an identical passage in John 17:15 in the outside position. Okay, So do you understand what the debate is about? Is ek being preserved from within the trial? Or do we never enter in the trial, we're kept from it altogether? That's what the debate is about. And I'm going to give you evidence where ek is used on the outside position. Okay, So let me give you some examples of the outside ek. First of all, I'm going to start in classical Greek literature. And this comes from a man who I'm indebted to named Paul Feinberg in his book, Three Views on the Rapture. I think he does an outstanding job. There's also a man named Jeffrey Townsend. If you Google it, you might be able to find his... He wrote a research article on this. It is absolutely tremendous. It blows the post-trib people out of the water, in my opinion. And it's about the usage of ek in Revelation 3.10. Can you believe it? There's people who sit around reading about how prepositions are used in verses. And there's people who write about it. And God bless them. I mean, that is awesome that we have people that are willing to do that. So... Here's the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. There's an example of Ek being used in the outside position. It says, Thereafter we, will we hold ourselves aloof from the fight beyond the range of the missiles. And so obviously, there's an example of Ek being used there. They're not inside the range of the missiles being preserved. They're on the outside. Okay, and Ek is one of the, it's, Ek is used there beyond. Okay, so ek is functioning there as a preposition on the outside position. Now, that's, if that's all we had, that's pretty weak because that's classical Greek literature, but nonetheless, it's even there. Next, I'm going to move to the Septuagint, the, XX, the LXX, and we're going to look at Proverbs 21.23 where it says, The one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble. Now, this term keeps is interesting because it's a compound form of tereo, dia tereo. And so tereo is the one that's used in Revelation 3.10. So this is a compound form of that. And we have ek here, which is from, right? Now, the point here is that this from is clearly functioning on the outside position. How do we know that? Well, because the Lord wouldn't want you to guard your mouth after you've already gotten yourself into trouble, but rather you guard your mouth so and your tongue so you don't get into trouble. Okay, so it's obviously that ek is being used there for the outside position. And you also can see examples in the Septuagint in Joshua 2.13, Psalm 33.19, and 56.13 for the same outside position usage of ek in the Septuagint. Now, let's move to the New Testament. Acts 15.29, remember that's the Jerusalem Council. That's the Jerusalem Council. And here, Those in the Jerusalem Council, the apostles are asking people to keep themselves from certain sins, things strangled to um, idols, blood, fornication, and that sort of thing. And so what they say is, in 1529, keeping yourself from such things, from those sins. That's what they had concluded for the Gentiles. 
Well, the keeping here, again, is from dia tereo. It's a compound form of tereo that we have in Revelation 3.10. And we have another usage of the outside form of ek. Because it's not, it's not that the apostles wanted these people to get into these sins and then get themselves out or be preserved in the midst of them, but rather they never wanted them to get involved with these sins. Okay, so there's another clear example of the outside usage of ek. Let me give you some more important ones. Now we're moving into John's literature. And very interesting, in John 12, 27, Jesus has entered his time of trouble, but what you're going to see is he's asking a hypothetical question here. Should he have asked the Lord, his Father, to have kept him from it? Listen to what Jesus says. 1227a of John, he says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Okay, now what's interesting in the Greek here, we have sotsan, which is save me from, and then it's the hour this. So we just say this, the hour, this hour. Okay, but what I want you to focus in on, here's a verb for saving, which is kind of like tereo, and then you have ek again, which is the from. So this is very similar to Revelation 3.10. But I want you to see here is when we focus in on this hour, this hour again is the hour of Jesus' passion. And what he's saying is, when we get to 12b, he says, but, and by the way, this but is a contrastive conjunction. He's saying, should I pray that I be exempt from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So the point is, he's asking a hypothetical. Should he have been exempt from that hour? Because for that very reason, he came. And so certainly what he's asking is, should he have asked the Father for the, ex- the exemption from being on the outside position, being spared from his passion? And, of course, the obvious answer is no. Okay? Now, I want to be very upfront. I want to show you John 12, 23, where in the context, he has actually entered into this time period. It says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what people would say would be this. Here would be the comeback. They would say, Well, Jesus is already in the hour. And so certainly, Eck is functioning as he is being preserved during the hour. But what Jesus is asking for isn't to be preserved during the crucifixion. How can he be preserved during the crucifixion? He's, what he's doing is he's throwing the hypothetical. Should he have asked for the exemption from, to be excused from it? Because that's the very purpose he came. Now, to give further merit to my view, look at what's said in the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew 26, 39, Jesus prays, he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, what is he talking about? He's really talking about what happens during this hour. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Okay? He's asking for exemption. And he he actually states one of the most profound things in all the Bible, not as I will, but as you will. The exact opposite of what Adam and Eve said in the garden. The exact opposite. And he said something that no human being has ever been able to say all the time, but Jesus could. Okay? Not my will but thine be done. And he says it again in Luke twenty two forty two. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. So he's clearly talking about being removed from what? From this hour. And that's what he's alluding to here. And what he's saying here is, but, contrastive, different. He says, for this purpose I came to this hour. So of course I shouldn't be exempt from it. So clearly he's talking about the outside usage of Eck being exempt from the hour, which to him was absurd because that was the purpose he came. All right? Now, this is the coup de grace. This is the... The, the big kahuna here, uh, John seventeen fifteen, because this is the only other passage in all of Greek literature, whether the Bible or classical Greek, that has tereo and ek in it, identical 
to what is used in Revelation 3.10. And it's written by John, and it's being stated by Jesus in both Revelation 3.10 and John 17.15. So this passage is highly important to explain to us how John uses act in the outside or the inside position. So let me read it to you. Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now let me show you what, we're going to talk more about the passage obviously, but let me show you what Ryan says about this. And he is saying this on page 163 of his book, and it's in relationship to Revelation 3.10 and how John uses Eck and what he states in this passage. Notice what Ryan says. He says, No two that kept from does not necessitate removal. In like manner, Jesus prays for his people to be kept from the evil one, but this does not entail removal from the earth. And and again, I'm sorry to be so persnickety, but that's missing the entire point. Because the entire point of Revelation 17.15 is how does this preposition function? And Ryan isn't addressing that issue. If the preposition is functioning on the outside, the outside position of Eck, then more than likely that's how John is using it in Revelation 3.10. And if it's functioning that way in Revelation 3.10, then you and I are being preserved on the outside of the tribulation and therefore will never enter in. Well, he's not even addressing that issue. And so to me, this is off target again. It's not getting at the issue that's at hand. That's not what the scholars are debating. The scholars are debating how tereo or tereso, the future active indicative tereo, and the preposition ek are functioning together. Okay, now, I'm going to prove to you that this is another usage of the outside form of act. Let me prove it to you. First of all, notice there's two clauses here. The first one, A, the disciples are in the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, right? They're clearly in the world, okay? And, and we see actually in context in Jan, John 17:11, Jesus alluding to this very thing. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. So clearly, the disciples are in the world. But what's interesting is we have this contrastive conjunctive. Again, it's, it's but. But, now we have a change. But to keep them from the evil one. Now here's the difference. The disciples are not in the evil one. Okay? They are not in the evil one. In fact, Jesus is praying now that they would be kept from him. And that's why this from is on the outside position. There's a contrast, and that but alludes to it. And it's further illustrated in context of the whole passage, John 17, 12. Jesus says, while I was with them, I was keeping them. That keeping is important because it has to do with keeping in a salvific way. This isn't Jesus keeping people from merely falling and stumbling into sin. This is Jesus keeping people in his camp so that they will not ever enter into perdition. This is a salvific prayer that he's going to be entering into in John 17. So while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. Okay? So clearly, these people are not being touched by the evil one. In fact, he asked for the continuance of their being kept from the evil one. Okay? So that's the whole point. We are kept from Satan's sphere. Okay? So again, let me illustrate this pictorially. John 17:15a and John 17:15b, the two different clauses. First of all, John 17:15a I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So here we have the world and Jesus is saying don't take them out. Okay? They're in the world, don't take them out. But here's the contrast of keep them from the evil one. So here's the picture that you have. You have the realm of Satan and you have the realm of Christ, of Jesus, his kingdom. Right? Remember Colossians 1:13, we have been taken out of the realm or the domain of darkness 
and we have been brought into the kingdom of his glorious son. And the point here is that Satan's kingdom will never encroach upon us. The evil one will never touch us. And so clearly from is functioning here on the outside position. And what I'm going to show you is that is how John understands there's Satan's kingdom and there's Jesus' kingdom and there's no touching. Okay, there's no touching. See, what most people do is when they read this, I think they, ha- they have the false notion that what's at stake is temptation. It's not. Because in the following chapter, chapter 18 of John, Peter falls into sin, into temptation. Well, clearly then Jesus' prayer would not have been answered. But it was answered because Jesus was praying not for their lack of temptation, but for their preservation, for their salvation. And so again, Jesus, if you're in his camp, you will not be touched from the evil one. You will, and so it's a form of the outside position of act. Okay? So now let me build the case stronger. We are kept from Satan's fear. John 17, 11. Listen to what Jesus says. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Now, to prove that this has to do with salvation, look at what Jesus says in the next verse. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished. So again, this doesn't have to do with temptation. This has to do with salvation. And then he continues, he says, but the son of perdition, that of course is Judas, he's the only one that perished, of course, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So again, this proves that salvation is what's at stake. Okay? And that's why in uh, John 17, 15, when he says, keep them from the evil one, he's talking about keeping them forever in my camp. Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear, hear my voice, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. So now that he's leaving, he's asking the Father that the Father would always keep the sheep in the fold, and they'll never be encroached by the kingdom of Satan. Okay? And again, John 18, look, the, I think this is the little girl, I don't remember for sure, but the question is, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. What I'm showing you here is that certainly this can't be talking, Jesus' prayer can't be talking about preservation from temptation because here Peter succumbed to it, the very next chapter. So clearly what Jesus is asking for is salvation, that they would never enter Satan's sphere. And so, oops, there we go. Let me show you again how John understands these two spheres. First John 5, 18 through 19, by the way, we'll be preaching about this very topic this coming Sunday. John says this, he says, We know that no one who is born of God, of course a believer, sins. But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Okay? So again, if you're in Christ, if you're in this camp, you're not going to be touched by Satan and his minion in this camp. And then he goes on, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the whole world lies under his power, but you and I aren't touched by him. So again, why is that important? Because in John 17, 15, when he says, keep them from the evil one, it's on the outside position, right? And let me keep going. show you Colossians 1, 13. Listen to how Paul understands it. He says, for he, this is the Father, he's giving him praise, rescued us from the domain of darkness, that's Satan's kingdom, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We're in this kingdom. And we're never going to be encroached upon. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching for preservation in John 17, 15, that his people would always be kept in his kingdom by the Father. Okay, again. So here, let me just sum it all up. John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, so we're all in the world, right? But to keep them from the evil one. 
So here is the form of the outside position. We're kept from Satan. And so clearly John 17, 15 is using ek, that is from, on the outside position. Now let's take that down to Revelation 3.10. I also will keep you from the hour of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Well, think about the hour of testing. That's the seven-year, Daniel's 70th week, and we don't know when it's coming, but it's here. And someday it's going to break forth. So let's say we're living and we're going along in life and all of a sudden it comes about and we have to be taken out of here before this hour of testing. Why? Because it's preservation on the outside, just as it's functioning in in John 17, 15, in here, right? Those who are of Jesus are never going to contact Satan. So we are going to be exempt on the outside, kept from this hour of testing, and then we return with the Lord and we set up the millennial kingdom. So clearly, friends, Revelation 3.10, the way ek is used with the verb tereo, it's functioning on the outside. The only other passage in all of Greek literature, which is written by John, which are the words of Jesus, uses the preposition in that way, John 17.15. And so all of this nonsense about, well, whether removal is happening in, in John 17.15, it's irrelevant. How does the verb and the preposition function? It functions on the outside. And so clearly, friends, Revelation 3.10 should be understood that way. On what exegetical grounds do we say it's on the inside position? And that there's preservation from. And if you're being preserved from, or, you know, during, I should say, during the trial, well, remember, if you're being preserved during the trial, these people are going to be undergoing horrendous things on the earth. How would you be preserved? Especially because it's an hour. It's a temporal event. So you can't even be present. Let me make it clear, if I can. Think if I was a math teacher. And I said, all of you students who scored 94% in all your tests, I'm going to keep you from the hour of the test on the last day. Would you assume by me saying that, that, you know what, I still have to go and show up and take the test, but yet he's not going to really you know, score a difficult... No, you're going to go to the beach, right? You're, you're gone. You're not showing up, right? The same thing applies here. And I know that's overly simplistic, but I think I've showed you the biblical data. That's how you understand it. It's, it's, it's kind of common sense, isn't it? Okay. So now what I want to show you in the remaining minutes here is that God actually saves his own from wrath. And we see not only Revelation 3.10 talking about it, but also other passages, namely 2 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to explain that. But let me dig into this passage one more time. Revelation 3.10, Jesus promises, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. This term here, testing, actually comes from this noun, perasmas. And it's interesting is it means to endeavor or attempt to cause someone to sin to tempt, to trap, to lead into temptation. And so this, friends, is going to come upon who? Well, the whole inhabited world. So it's a worldwide thing. So certainly that's talking about the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week. And it's to test, and this term test again is now the verbal form, perazzo, those who dwell upon the earth. Well, those who dwell upon the earth, are only it's only used for unbelievers in the book of Revelation. You can look it up, do a word study. It's only for unbelievers. Okay, another evidence that we're not going to be there. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people say, well, Revelation 3.10 is the only passage that alludes to this. Well, not so fast. 2 Peter 2, 7 through 9 is an interesting one. Now, I'm not convinced that this isn't talking about everyday persecution that we're exempt from, but what's interesting is what Peter is talking about. He's talking about Noah and he's talking about Lot, and they are preserved from the judgment that comes. They're exempt from it, and yet those who are to be judged, God pours his judgment on And so I picked it up in verse 7 where Peter says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, 
oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled man, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, he says, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. This term rescued is a form of ruamai. And the reason I'm going to show you that is you're going to see this again in 1 Thessalonians. Ruamai is used twice. Now notice this term temptation. That is exactly the term that's used here. Okay, so again, he's talking about the rescue of the godly from this trial. Okay, now what's interesting is Lot, Lot was removed before the destruction. He wasn't preserved during it. And in some sense, Noah was in a different realm. He was on the ark. Everybody else was in the water. Noah, not in water, Noah in ark. He's preserved, right? Keep it simple. So there's this idea of preservation. And so he's alluding to the very same thing. The one thing that gives me pause here, to be fair, is that here there's the definite article, the hour of testing. Here he doesn't use it. And so maybe he's just referring to everyday temptation. But it's it's curious to me that he uses this ruamai that's used in 1 Thessalonians, as I'm going to show you, and he's using the same word for temptation, perasmas. In fact, it's the genitive form here that's used up here in Revelation 3.10. So perhaps it's another indication that we're going to be preserved. Now, let me show you ones that I am sure about. Oh, by the way, the from there is ek again, the preposition ek. Now, let me show you uh, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. This is an eschatological passage. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom God raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues, there's Ruamai, the same thing used in Second Peter 2, uh, rescues us from the wrath to come. Okay? So again, we're going to be rescued. And this is in the eschatological context because later in chapter 5, Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that this is in context of the beginning of the 70th week. How do we know that? Well, because, remember, 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says this, and this is you know just seven verses earlier, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety. Remember, in Revelation chapter 6, I said um, in the second seal, the Lord declares that peace is taken from the earth. So certainly the beginning of the day of the Lord happens at the beginning of the 70th week. And yet we're exempt from the wrath that occurs then. This is the eschatological wrath that happens at the beginning of the 70th week. And so here, not only does Revelation 3.10 prove that we have exemption from that period, the outside usage of act, just like John used in John 17.15, but we're seeing again exemption from the wrath of God in the Pauline literature in 1 Thessalonians. And, and I think that you could make a case that Second Peter 2 is also talking about the exemption from this wrath, perhaps. Okay. So again, Revelation 3.10, friends, isn't the only passage that talks about being exempt from the eschatological wrath that is to come upon the whole world. Okay, now with that, let me give you my summary. All right, Five points. Number one, the New Testament, friends, clearly teaches that Jesus could return at any time without precursor. Right? That's the doctrine of imminence. Two, Post, mid, and pre-wrath, trib, rapture positions require a precursor to take place first. And therefore, those positions, in my opinion, should be jettisoned. Number three, John 17.15 is the only other example of tereo ek in all of Greek literature, and it clearly represents the outside position of the preposition. Number four, Revelation 3.10, therefore, clearly teaches exemption of the church from the hour of trial that will come upon the whole world. 
Number five, the pre-trib position is the only position that has God's people being raptured prior to the 70th week. And to me, that's been very compelling in the reason why I hold to the pre-trib position. And again, I think the post-trib people are saying, well, you can take Revelation 3.10 either way. I don't think so. I think it's very conclusive. I think the work of Jeffrey Townsend and people like Paul Feinberg have blown men like Gundry and some of these post-trib people out of the water with their understanding of how tereo, the verb, and the, the preposition act function together. Oftentimes, the post-trib people, they just look at the preposition and they simply say it always means out from within. Well, it's not that simple. And I've showed you that. And so clearly, I think the biblical data is on our side. And for that reason, I think it gives us very good ammunition to hold to a pre-trib position. So with that, wow, I wasn't sure if we were going to make it in time. I will take your questions or your comments. And, and I'm sorry, I, I know that I probably threw a lot at you. Um, I had too much time on my hands in these two weeks, so I had too many slides that I built. But does anybody have, did, did the preposition and everything, does that make sense, the outside and the, Yeah. You know, I have a confession because oh. I took classes and Bible studies from Marv Rosenthal, oh, yeah. and I thought he was the greatest. And that's where I learned all about the feasts of the Lord and um, and studied under him. Sure. And so it's difficult sure. to, to hear this. You know, and, but, and just to, I don't mean sure. to interrupt, but, you know, he is a brother, and he gets most things right. And we agree on many, many things that we believe in. The, the premillennial position. We believe in a literal bodily coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. and So we have more in common than we have apart. We're just disagreeing on the timing of the rapture. But So anyway, I, I hope that doesn't, you no. know, I hope that gives you some comfort too. So, that so the one thing that does kind of, even though this is, this is just compelling, what can you say? Sure. The one thing that trips me up is the feast of the Lord and mm. how, how they've all been fulfilled. Sure. Just clockwork like yeah. god's calendar sure. and so the, i know the next feast to come is the feast of trumpets and sure. and there's how do you look at all these feasts that have been fulfilled in that way yeah you know i talked to you a couple times ago about that and, and i'll just reiterate my, sure. my same point is in hindsight yeah we see for instance jesus comes in to jerusalem on lamb selection day the 10th day of nisan which is actually a monday harold honer by the way has a book called the chronological aspects of the life of christ and he does a beautiful job linking the prophecy of Daniel 9. Remember, there's the 70 weeks prophecy? Well, there'd be 69 weeks of years until Messiah would come in. That's 483 years, 173,880 days. Well, that ends up being the 10th day of Nisan, 33 AD. Okay? Well, but what's funny is no one knew that at the time. You know that in hindsight, but you can never, you know what I'm saying? In other words, you can't say next year, the Feast of Trumpets, the Lord is coming. Now, it wouldn't surprise me when the Lord comes if it happens at the Feast of Trumpets, but it'll always be in hindsight. Do you see what I'm saying? It, it could be. Right. We just don't know. Yeah, we're not sure. You know. So again, um, Jesus fulfills, you know, he comes in the 10th day of Nisan, he's crucified in the 14th, he's in the ground the full day of the 15th. Remember, he says, unless a kernel of wheat fall into the ground, how can it bring forth life? So here, the bread of life who comes from Bethlehem, Bethlehem, is the house of bread, so the bread of life comes from the house of bread and he's buried during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then he's raised during the Feast of First Fruits. And that the imagery there is, oh, that's the 16th day of Nisan, 
the, the imagery of the Feast of First Fruits is that's the first portion of the harvest and the rest is to come. And of course, that's why the promise is you and I will one day be raised too. So he does, he fulfills all these things. So it wouldn't surprise me, but we can't know until after the fact. And that's why no one knows the day or the hour. So that's how I would answer. Yeah. Yep. So it wouldn't surprise me if it happened, but we don't know that for sure. In hindsight, wouldn't it be something if it happens that way? And sure enough, yeah. But again, we don't know. Yep. But it's a good question. It's good to think about. Having just studied Revelation just recently, looking back, we never saw the church in the seventy and during the during the tribulation. Never saw it. Mm. We always we always saw the 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 people that were being evangelized. So, do you think that there's a confusion in the pre-rathers that that this the new people, the the, the people that are being evangelized and uh, come to salvation? Do you think there's a confusion there and, and seeing them as the church as the prior to the the pre-trib church? Yeah, um, you know it's funny. I know Alan Kirshner and Bob had talked about that issue, and certainly there is a church during this tribulation period, but there are people who come to faith after the fact. After the fact, exactly right. during right. it. So we do have believers. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I would have issues with the pre-wrath position because remember, there's going to be a resurrection right. after the 70th week is over and yet they would have to maintain that it only the only rapture that occurs is in Revelation chapter 7. So to answer your question, I think that you know certainly there's the church that's present and there are people who are being evangelized as you've stated, right. but it certainly isn't, it's not those who have believed up until the time of the 70th week. Correct. Because we are, in fact, exempt um, from that. So I, I don't know if that answers the question. No, or, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's not asking a question. I'm just sort of making a comment. Okay. That looks like, it sounds to me like the pre-wrath group are looking at those that are being evangelized. Now they're a church, and then they will, there's going to be another resurrection. But the, the pre-trib, they're, they're gone. And, and like I said, we never, even without saying we're studying Revelation, to, to, to determine whether it's pre-trib, pre-wrath, yeah. whatever. We weren't doing it for that right, reason. Exactly, yeah. And we never saw, I don't think we ever discussed that the church was there at that yeah. time. Yeah, and trip. one of the key passages that we're going to be talking about, I think about this next time again, is in Revelation chapter 7, those who are coming out of the Great Tribulation. And what they have to maintain is that's the rapture in Revelation 7.14. What's interesting is ek is another preposition that's used there. There, at that time, that's used with Erkamai, which has to do with movement. Okay, so they are coming out of the midst of, from within the tribulation. Well, what I had pointed out in one of the earlier lectures is that that would seem to indicate that there's only the only church that's coming out of the tribulation. They must be martyred because it was re, if it was referring to the rapture, there would be many people outside of the tribulation period that would be there. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. Because the saints from all the ages would have have to be part of that that rapture. But in that text, it's talking about just those who are in the Great Tribulation. And so that gives me great comfort in saying, no, what's happening in Revelation 7.14 isn't the rapture, but it's martyrdom. They're coming out because of martyrdom. And um, I'll be actually maybe getting into that a little bit next week again as we get into Revelation. But, yeah, it's a great comment, and I think you're exactly right, yeah. So I'm looking at the, the John 5:18-19. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keepeth him, and the evil one does not touch him, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. I'm wondering the whole emphasis about being new creatures. Mm -hmm. If there's anything 
that talks about that in the, for those who are, I don't even know if the right word is regenerated, in during the tribulation, those who are, who come to Jesus during the tribulation period, the 70 weeks, if they are new creatures also, or oh, if it's yeah. only the people who come to Jesus before. No, absolutely. Um, those who live during the tribulation that come to faith, they also will be kept they will also be the regenerate. They'll be saved. Salvation has always been the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's always a sovereign act of God. He sovereignly keeps his people. That's why when you see the chance to take, like, for instance, the mark of the beast in um, Revelation chapter 14, all of those who truly believe in Jesus Christ, they do, in fact, persevere. Okay? They will not take it. So even those who live during the tribulation period, God will keep them in such a way where they will persevere. Now, it's interesting you mentioned... 1 John 5.18, I just want to make sure everybody understands. When it says, we know that no one who is born of God sins, remember that term sin is in the present tense. And it's very important because it indicates ongoing, continuous sin. In other words, your life isn't characterized by sin. That doesn't mean that you never flub or that you never sin as a believer. Because remember in 1 John 1.8, if anyone says that he has no sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. But if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just. So the point is, is believers do have sin, but they're not characterized by it. Again, um, my analogy is if you fall in the mud puddle, you get out. So God does the same for all believers for all time. He helps them persevere so they don't stay in the mud puddle. And that'll be the same as with believers in the tribulation period as well. I know that I have studied Jack Kelly's Grace Through Faith on the Internet, and he teaches that the people who come to Jesus during the tribulation are not infilled with the Holy Spirit because maybe the, the Holy Spirit has left with the yeah, I, church. Yeah, and, I, would, I would disagree with that. One, one, one item is that I, I got into who the restrainer was, and some people think it's the Holy Spirit. Realize that just because the Holy Spirit's function as the restrainer may leave doesn't necessarily mean the whole totality of what the spirit does and who he is leaves okay in other words it could be just his restraining function is taken away more than likely though i don't think the restrainer probably is the holy spirit so the point is is the believer will in fact be indwelt by the holy spirit and the holy spirit will in fact keep believers during the tribulation just as they as he does for us as well yeah so yeah and again and and that's um that's one of the issues where people put themselves in a box because they say well the Holy Spirit is the restrainer. The restrainer leaves, and therefore they can't have the Holy Spirit. There's two ways out. Number one, it may not be the restrainer. Number two, maybe only the, that function, the restraining function, the Holy Spirit is removed, not his other work. I so, think that's yep. more clearly what he teaches and that the um, that the Holy Spirit will work more like he did in the Old Testament times oh, rather see. than he did has been during the okay. last days. You know. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily comment on that i would say it would still happen during or just like it would during the new testament period after pentecost but yeah anyway that's a good question that was good to think about well i with that does anybody else have anything well friends um next time we're together we're going to be getting into how revelation is structured we don't have time to get into all the verses but i think what's important is I'm going to be getting into how Revelation is structured, whether it's sequential, where there's recapitulation. I'll be talking about that. And I'm going to be talking a little bit more about God's wrath in some of the issues related to the fifth and sixth seal. And so we'll be focusing in on that. And then I'm going to be relating, I think the next two times we're together, we're going to be in the book of Revelation. 
And what I'd like to do is end on a note where we talk about individual eschatology, what happens when you die, what happens to a person in the Old Testament, the New Testament, onward. And we'll be talking about that and we'll wrap it up kind of that way. So I'm envisioning three more times together. And so hopefully we can get her done by then. So anyway, blessings, my friends. Thanks for coming.